Chapter 29 On a small, obscure world somewhere in the middle of nowhere in particular, nowhere, that is, that could ever be found, since it is protected by a vast field of unprobability to which only six men in this galaxy have a key, it was raining. It was bucketing down, and had been for hours. It beat the top of the sea into a mist. It pounded the trees. It churned and slopped a stretch of scrubby land near the sea into a mud bath. The rain pelted and danced on the corrugated iron roof of the small shack that stood in the middle of this patch of scrubby land. It obliterated the small rough pathway that led from the shack down to the seashore and smashed apart the neat piles of interesting shells which had been placed there. The noise of the rain on the roof of the shack was deafening within, but went largely unnoticed by its occupant, whose attention was otherwise engaged. He was a tall, shambling man, with rough, straw-coloured hair that was damp from the leaking roof. His clothes were shabby, his back was hunched, and his eyes, though open, seemed closed. In his shack was an old beaten-up armchair, an old scratch table, an old mattress, some cushions, and a stove that was small but warm. There was also an old and slightly weather-beaten cat, and this was currently the focus of the man's attention. He bent his shambling form over it. Pussy, 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 he said. Coochie, 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 coo. Pussy wants his fish. Nice piece of fish. Pussy want it. The cat seemed undecided on the matter. It poured rather condescendingly at the piece of fish the man was holding out and then got distracted by a piece of dust on the floor. Pussy not eat his fish. Pussy get thin and waste away, I think, said the man. Doubt crept into his voice. I imagine this is what will happen, he said. But how can I tell? He proffered the fish again. Pussy think, he said. Eat fish or not eat fish. I think it is better if I don't get involved, he sighed. I think fish is nice, but then I think that rain is wet, so who am I to judge? He left the fish on the floor for the cat and retired to his seat. Ah, I seem to see you eating it, he said at last, as the cat exhausted the entertainment possibilities of the speck of dust and pounced on the fish. I like it when I see you eat fish, said the man, because in my mind you will waste away if you don't. He picked up from the table a piece of paper and the stub of a pencil. He held one in one hand and the other in the other and experimented with the different ways of bringing them together. He tried holding the pencil under the paper, then over the paper, then next to the paper. He tried wrapping the paper round the pencil, he tried rubbing the stubby end of the pencil against the paper, and then he tried rubbing the sharp end of the pencil against the paper. It made a mark, and he was delighted with the discovery, as he was every day. He picked up another piece of paper from the table. This had a crossword on it. He studied it briefly and filled in a couple of clues before losing interest. He tried sitting on one of his hands and was intrigued by the feel of the bones on his hip. Fish come from far away, he said, or so I'm told, or so I imagine I'm told. When the men come, or when in my mind the men come, in their six black shiny ships, do they come in your mind too? What do you see, pussy? He looked at the cat, which was more concerned with getting the fish down as rapidly as possible than it was with these speculations. And when I hear their questions, do you hear questions? What do their voices mean to you? Perhaps you just think they're singing songs to you. He reflected on this and saw the flaw in the supposition. Perhaps they are singing songs to you, he said, and I just think they're asking me questions. He paused again. Sometimes he would pause for days, just to see what it was like. Do you think they came today, he said. I do. There's mud on the floor, cigarettes and whiskey on the table, fish on a plate for you, and a memory of them in my mind. Hardly conclusive evidence, I know, but then all evidence is circumstantial. And look what else they've left me. He reached over to the table 
and pulled some things off it. Crosswords, dictionaries, and a calculator. He played with the calculator for an hour, whilst the cat went to sleep and the rain outside continued to pour. Eventually, he put the calculator aside. I think I must be right in thinking they ask me questions, he said. To come all that way and leave all these things just for the privilege of singing songs to you would be very strange behaviour. Or so it seems to me. Who can tell? Who can tell? From the table, he picked up a cigarette and lit it with a spill from the stove. He inhaled deeply and sat back. I think I saw another ship in the sky today, he said at last. A big white one. I've never seen a big white one, just the six black ones and the six green ones and the others who say they come from so far away. Never a big white one. Perhaps six small black ones can look like one big white one at certain times. Perhaps I would like a glass of whiskey. Yes, that seems more likely. He stood up and found a glass that was lying on the floor by his mattress. He poured in a measure from his whiskey bottle. He sat again. Perhaps some other people are coming to see me, he said. A hundred yards away, pelted by the torrential rain, lay the heart of gold. Its hatchway opened and three figures emerged, huddling into themselves to keep the rain off their faces. In there? shouted Trillian above the noise of the rain. Yes, said Zani Whoop. That shack? Yes. Weird, said Zaphod. But it's in the middle of nowhere, said Trillian. We must have come to the wrong place. You can't rule the universe from a shack. They hurried through the pouring rain and arrived wet through at the door. They knocked. They shivered. The door opened. Hello, said the man. Ah, excuse me, said Zani Whoop. I have reason to believe. Do you rule the universe, said Zaphod. The man smiled at him. I try not to, he said. Are you wet? Zaphod looked at him in astonishment. Wet, he cried. Doesn't it look as if we're wet? That's how it looks to me, said the man. But how you feel about it might be an altogether different matter. If you find warmth makes you dry, you'd better come in. They went in. They looked around the tiny shack, Zani with slight distaste, Trillian with interest, Zaphod with delight. Hey, um, said Zaphod, what's your name? The man looked at them doubtfully. I don't know. Why do you think I should have one? Seems very odd to give a bundle of vague sensory perceptions a name. He invited Trillian to sit in the chair. He sat on the edge of the chair. Zani Whoop leaned stiffly against the table and Zaphod lay on the mattress. Wowee! said Zaphod. The seat of power! He tickled the cat. Listen, said Zani Whoop. I must ask you some questions. All right, said the man kindly. You can sing to my cat if you like. Would he like that? asked Zaphod. You'd better ask him, said the man. Does he talk? said Zaphod. I have no memory of him talking, said the man, but I am very unreliable. Zani Whoop pulled some notes out of a pocket. Now, he said, you do rule the universe, do you? How can I tell? said the man. Zani Whoop ticked off a note on the paper. How long have you been doing this? Ah, said the man. This is a question about the past, is it? Zani Whoop looked at him in puzzlement. This wasn't exactly what he had been expecting. Yes, he said. How can I tell, said the man, that the past isn't a fiction designed to account for the discrepancy between my immediate physical sensations and my state of mind? Zani Whoop stared at him. The steam began to rise from his sodden clothes. So you answer all questions like this, he said. The man answered quickly. I say what it occurs to me to say when I think I hear people say things. More, I cannot say. Zaphod laughed happily. Ha <laughs> ha, I'll drink to that, he said, and pulled out the bottle of Jank's spirit. 
he leapt up and handed the bottle to the ruler of the universe, who took it with pleasure. Good on you, great ruler, he said. Tell it like it is. No, listen to me, said Zani Whoop. People come to you, do they, in ships? I think so, said the man. He handed the bottle to Trillian. And they ask you, said Zani Whoop, to take decisions for them about people's lives, about worlds, about economies, about wars, about everything going on out there in the universe. Out there, said the man. Out where? Out there, said Zani Whoop, pointing at the door. How can you tell there's anything out there, said the man politely. The door's closed. The rain continued to pound the roof. Inside the shack it was warm. But you know there's a whole universe out there, cried Zani Whoop. You can't dodge your responsibilities by saying they don't exist. The ruler of the universe thought for a long while whilst Zani Whoop quivered with anger. You're very sure of your facts, he said at last. I couldn't trust the thinking of a man who takes the universe, if there is one, for granted. Zani Whoop still quivered, but was silent. I only decide about my universe, continued the man quietly. My universe is my eyes and my ears. Anything else is hearsay. But don't you believe in anything? The man shrugged and picked up his cat. I don't understand what you mean, he said. You don't understand that what you decide in this shack of yours affects the lives and fates of millions of people? This is all monstrously wrong. I don't know. I've never met all these people you speak of, and neither, I suspect, of you. They only exist in words we hear. It is folly to say you know what is happening to other people. Only they know if they exist. They have their own universes, of their eyes and ears. Trillian said, I think I'm just popping outside for a moment. She left and walked into the rain. Do you believe other people exist? insisted Zani Whoop. I have no opinion. How can I say? I'd better see what's up with Trillian, said Zaphod, and slipped out. Outside, he said to her, I think the universe is in pretty good hands, yeah? Very good, said Trillian. They walked off into the rain. Inside, Zani Whoop continued. But don't you understand that people live or die on your word? The ruler of the universe waited for as long as he could. When he heard the faint sound of the ship's engines starting, he spoke to cover it. It's nothing to do with me, he said. I am not involved with people. The Lord knows I am not a cruel man. Ah, barked Zani Whoop. You say the Lord, you believe in something. My cat, said the man benignly, picking it up and stroking it. I call him the Lord. I am kind to him. All right, said Zaniwoop, pressing home his point. How do you know he exists? How do you know he knows you to be kind or enjoys what he thinks of as your kindness? I don't said the man with a smile. I have no idea. It merely pleases me to behave in a certain way to what appears to be a cat. Do you behave any differently? Please, I think I'm tired. Zani Whoop heaved a thoroughly dissatisfied sigh and looked about. Where are the other two? he said suddenly. What are the two? said the ruler of the universe, settling back into his chair and refilling his whiskey glass. Beeble Brox and the girl, the two who were here. I remember no one. The past is a fiction to account for. Stuff it, snapped Zani Whoop and ran out into the rain. There was no ship. The rain continued to churn the mud. There was no sign to show where the ship had been. He hollered into the rain. He turned and ran back to the shack and found it locked. The ruler of the universe dozed lightly in his chair. After a while, he played with the pencil and the paper again and was delighted when he discovered how to make a mark with the one on the other. Various noises continued outside, but he didn't know whether they were real or not. He then talked to his table for a week to see how it would react. Chapter 30 
The stars came out that night, dazzling in their brilliance and clarity. Ford and Arthur had walked more miles than they had any means of judging and finally stopped to rest. The night was cool and balmy, the air pure, the sub-ether sensomatic totally silent. A wonderful stillness hung over the world, a magical calm which combined with the soft fragrances of the woods, the quiet chatter of insects and the brilliant light of the stars to soothe their jangled spirits. Even Ford Prefect, who had seen more worlds than he could count on a long afternoon, was moved to wonder if this was the most beautiful he had ever seen. All that day they had passed through rolling green hills and valleys, richly covered with grasses, wild scented flowers and tall thickly leaved trees. The sun had warmed them, light breezes had kept them cool, and Ford Prefect had checked his sub-ether sensomatic at less and less frequent intervals and had exhibited less and less annoyance at its continued silence. He was beginning to think he liked it here. Cool though the night air was, they slept soundly and comfortably in the open and awoke a few hours later with the light dewfall feeling refreshed but hungry. Ford had stuffed some small rolls into his satchel at Milliways and they breakfasted off these before moving on. So far they had wandered purely at random, but now they struck out firmly eastwards, feeling that if they were going to explore this world, they should have some clear idea of where they had come from and where they were going. Shortly before noon, they had their first indication that the world they had landed on was not an uninhabited one. A half-glimpsed face amongst the trees watching them, it vanished at the moment they both saw it, but the image they were both left with was of a humanoid creature, curious to see them but not alarmed. Half an hour later, they glimpsed another such face, and ten minutes after that, another. A minute later, they stumbled into a wide clearing and stopped short. Before them, in the middle of the clearing, stood a group of about two dozen men and women. They stood still and quiet, facing Ford and Arthur. Around some of the women huddled some small children, and behind the group was a ramshackle array of small dwellings made of mud and branches. Ford and Arthur held their breath. The tallest of the men stood little over five feet high. They all stooped forward slightly, had longish arms and lowish foreheads, and clear bright eyes with which they stared intently at the strangers. Seeing that they carried no weapons and made no move towards them, Ford and Arthur relaxed slightly. For a while, the two groups simply stared at each other, neither side making any move. The natives seemed puzzled by the intruders, and whilst they showed no sign of aggression, they were quite clearly not issuing any invitations. Nothing happened. For a full two minutes, nothing continued to happen. After two minutes, Ford decided it was time something happened. Hello, he said. The women drew their children slightly closer to them. The men made hardly any discernible move, and yet their whole disposition made it clear that the greeting was not welcome. It was not resented in any great degree. It was just not welcome. One of the men, who had been standing slightly forward of the rest of the group, and who might therefore have been their leader, stepped forward. His face was quiet and calm, almost serene. He said quietly. This caught Arthur by surprise. He had grown so used to receiving an instantaneous and unconscious translation of everything he heard via the babelfish lodged in his ear that he had ceased to be aware of it, and he was only reminded of its presence now by the fact that it didn't seem to be working. Vague shadows of meaning had flickered at the back of his mind, but there was nothing he could get any firm grasp on. He guessed, correctly as it happens, that these people had as yet evolved no more than the barest rudiments of language, and that the babelfish was therefore powerless to help. He glanced at Ford, who was infinitely more experienced in these matters. "'I think,' said Ford, out of the corner of his mouth, He's asking us if we'd mind walking on round the edge of the village. A moment later, a gesture from the man-creature seemed to confirm this. 
continued the man-creature. The general gist, said Ford, as far as I can make out, is that we are welcome to continue our journey in any way we like, but if we would walk round his village rather than through it, it would make them all very happy. So what do we do? I think we make them happy, said Ford. Slowly and watchfully, they walked round the perimeter of the clearing. This seemed to go down very well with the natives, who bowed to them very slightly and then went about their business. Ford and Arthur continued their journey through the wood. A few hundred yards past the clearing, they suddenly came upon a small pile of fruit lying in their path. Berries that looked remarkably like raspberries and blackberries, and pulpy, green-skinned fruit that looked remarkably like pears. So far, they had steered clear of the fruit and berries they had seen, though the trees and bushes were laden with them. Look at it this way, Ford Prefect had said. Fruit and berries on strange planets either make you live or make you die. Therefore, the point at which to start toying with them is when you're going to die if you don't. That way, you stay ahead. The secret of healthy hitchhiking is to eat junk food. They looked at the pile that lay in their path with suspicion. It looked so good, it made them almost dizzy with hunger. Look at it this way, said Ford. Uh, yes, said Arthur. I'm trying to think of a way of looking at it which means we get to eat it, said Ford. The leaf-dappled sun gleamed on the plump skins of the things which looked like pears. The things which looked like raspberries and strawberries were fatter and riper than any Arthur had ever seen, even in ice cream commercials. Why don't we eat them and think about it afterwards, he said. Maybe that's what they want us to do. All right, look at it this way. Sounds good so far. It's there for us to eat. Either it's good or it's bad. Either they want to feed us or to poison us. If it's poisonous and we don't eat it, they'll just attack us some other way. If we don't eat, we lose out either way. I like the way you're thinking, said Ford. Now eat one. Hesitantly, Arthur picked up one of the things that looked like pears. I always thought that about the Garden of Eden story, said Ford. Hey, Garden of Eden, tree, apple, that bit, remember? Yes, of course I do. Your god person puts an apple tree in the middle of a garden and says, do what you like, guys. Oh, but don't eat the apple. Surprise, surprise, they eat it, and he leaps out from behind a bush shouting, gotcha! It wouldn't have made any difference if they hadn't eaten it. Why not? Because if you're dealing with somebody who has the sort of mentality which likes leaving hats on the pavement with bricks under them, you know perfectly well they won't give up. They'll get you in the end. What are you talking about? N never mind, eat the fruit. You know, this place almost looks like the Garden of Eden. Eat the fruit. Sounds quite like it too. Arthur took a bite from the thing which looked like a pear. It's a pear, he said. A few moments later, when they had eaten the lot, Ford Prefect turned round and called out. Thank you! Thank you very much, he called. You're very kind! They went on their way. For the next fifty miles of their journey eastward, they kept on finding the occasional gift of fruit lying in their path, and though they once or twice had a quick glimpse of a native man-creature amongst the trees, they never again made direct contact. They decided they rather liked a race of people who made it clear that they were grateful simply to be left alone. The fruit and berries stopped after 50 miles, because that was where the sea started. Having no pressing calls on their time, they built a raft and crossed the sea. It was relatively calm, only about 60 miles wide, and they had a reasonably pleasant crossing, landing in a country that was at least as beautiful as the one they had left. Life was, in short, ridiculously easy, and for a while at least they were able to cope with the problems of aimlessness and isolation by deciding to ignore them. When the craving for company became too great, they would know where to find it. But for the moment they were happy to feel that the Golgofrinchans were hundreds of miles behind them. Nevertheless, Ford Prefect began to use his sub-ether sensomatic more often again. Only once did he pick up a signal, 
but that was so faint and from such enormous distance that it depressed him more than the silence that had otherwise continued unbroken. On a whim, they turned northwards. After weeks of travelling, they came to another sea, built another raft, and crossed it. This time it was harder going. The climate was getting colder. Arthur suspected a streak of masochism in Ford Prefect. The increasing difficulty of the journey seemed to give him a sense of purpose that was otherwise lacking. He strode onwards relentlessly. Their journey northwards brought them into steep, mountainous terrain of breathtaking sweep and beauty. The vast, jagged, snow-covered peaks ravished their senses. The cold began to bite into their bones. They wrapped themselves in animal skins and furs, which Ford Prefect acquired by a technique he once learned from a couple of ex-Praylite monks, running a mind-surfing resort in the hills of Hunian. The galaxy is littered with ex-Praylite monks, all on the make, because the mental control techniques the Order has evolved as a form of devotional discipline are, frankly, sensational and extraordinary numbers of monks leave the order just after they have finished their devotional training and just before they take their final vows to stay locked in small metal boxes for the rest of their lives. Ford's technique seemed to consist mainly of standing still for a while and smiling. After a while, an animal, a deer perhaps, would appear from out of the trees and watch him cautiously. Ford would continue to smile at it. His eyes would soften and shine, and he would seem to radiate a deep, and universal love, a love which reached out to embrace all of creation. A wonderful quietness would descend on the surrounding countryside, peaceful and serene, emanating from this transfigured man. Slowly the deer would approach, step by step, until it was almost nuzzling him, whereupon Ford Prefect would reach out to it and break its neck. Pheromone control, he said it was. You just have to know how to generate the right smell. Chapter 31 A few days after landing in this mountainous land, they hit a coastline which swept diagonally before them from the southwest to the northeast, a coastline of monumental grandeur. Deep, majestic ravines, soaring pinnacles of ice, fjords. For two further days, they scrambled and climbed over the rocks and glaciers, awestruck with beauty. Arthur! yelled Ford suddenly. It was the afternoon of the second day. Arthur was sitting on a high rock, watching the thundering sea smashing itself against the craggy promontories. Arthur! yelled Ford again. Arthur looked to where Ford's voice had come from, carried faintly in the wind. Ford had gone to examine a glacier, and Arthur found him there, crouching by the solid wall of blue ice. He was tense with excitement. His eyes darted up to meet Arthur's. Look, he said, look! Arthur looked. He saw the solid wall of blue ice. Yes, he said, it's a glacier. I've already seen it. No, said Ford. You've looked at it. You haven't seen it. Look! Ford was pointing deep into the heart of the ice. Arthur peered. He saw nothing but vague shadows. Move back from it, insisted Ford. Look again! Arthur moved back and looked again. No, he said and shrugged. What am I supposed to be looking for? And suddenly he saw it. You see it? He saw it. His mouth started to speak, but his brain decided it hadn't got anything to say yet and shut it again. His brain then started to contend with the problem of what his eyes told it they were looking at but in doing so relinquished control of the mouth which promptly fell open again. Once more, gathering up the jaw, his brain lost control of his left hand, which then wandered around in an aimless fashion. For a second or so, the brain tried to catch the left hand without letting go of the mouth and simultaneously tried to think about what was buried in the ice, which is probably why the legs went and Arthur dropped restfully to the ground. The thing that had been causing all this neural upset was a network of shadows in the ice, about 18 inches beneath the surface. Looked at from the right angle, they resolved into the solid shapes of letters from an alien alphabet, each about three feet high. And for those, like Arthur, who couldn't read Magrathean, there was above the letters the outline of a face hanging in the ice. It was an old face, thin 
and distinguished, careworn but not unkind. It was the face of the man who had won an award for designing the coastline they now knew themselves to be standing on. Chapter 32 A thin whine filled the air. It whirled and howled through the trees, upsetting the squirrels. A few birds flew off in disgust. The noise danced and skittered round the clearing. It whooped, it rasped, it generally offended. The captain, however, regarded the lone bagpiper with an indulgent eye. Little could disturb his equanimity. Indeed, once he had got over the loss of his gorgeous bath during that unpleasantness in the swamp all those months ago, he had begun to find his new life remarkably congenial. A hollow had been scooped out of a large rock which stood in the middle of the clearing, and in this he would bask daily whilst attendants sloshed water over him. Not particularly warm water, it must be said, as they hadn't yet worked out a way of heating it. Never mind, that would come. And in the meantime, search parties were scouring the countryside far and wide for a hot spring, preferably one in a nice leafy glade, and if it was near a soap mine, perfection. To those who said that they had a feeling soap wasn't found in mines, the captain had ventured to suggest that perhaps that was because no one had looked hard enough, and this possibility had been reluctantly acknowledged. No, life was very pleasant, and the great thing about it was that when the hot spring was found, complete with leafy glade on sweet, and when in the fullness of time the cry came reverberating across the hills that the soap mine had been located and was producing 500 cakes a day, it would be more pleasant still. It was very important to have things to look forward to. Wail, wail, screech, wail, howl, honk, squeak, went the bagpipes, increasing the captain's already considerable pleasure at the thought that any moment now they might stop. That was something he looked forward to as well. What else was pleasant, he asked himself. Well, so many things. The red and gold of the trees now that autumn was approaching, the peaceful chatter of scissors a few feet from his bath, where a couple of hairdressers were exercising their skills on a dozing art director and his assistant. The sunlight gleaming off the six shiny telephones lined up along the edge of his rock-hewn bath. The only thing nicer than a phone that didn't ring all the time, or indeed at all, was six phones that didn't ring all the time, or indeed at all. Nicest of all was the happy murmur of all the hundreds of people slowly assembling in the clearing around him to watch the afternoon committee meeting. The captain punched his rubber duck playfully on the beak. The afternoon committee meetings were his favourite. Other eyes watched the assembling crowds. High in a tree on the edge of the clearing squatted Ford Prefect, lately returned from foreign climes. After his six-month journey he was lean and healthy, his eyes gleamed, he wore a reindeer-skin coat, his beard was as thick and his face as bronzed, as a country rock singer's. He and Arthur Dent had been watching the Golgifrinchens for almost a week now, and Ford had decided it was time to stir things up a bit. The clearing was now full. Hundreds of men and women lounged around, chatting, eating fruit, playing cards, and generally having a fairly relaxed time of it. Their tracksuits were now all dirty and even torn, but they all had immaculately styled hair. Ford was puzzled to see that many of them had stuffed their tracksuits full of leaves and wondered if this was meant to be some form of insulation against the coming winter. Ford's eyes narrowed. They couldn't be interested in botany of a sudden, could they? In the middle of these speculations, the captain's voice rose above the hubbub. All right, he said. I'd like to call this meeting to some sort of order, if that's at all possible. Is that all right with everybody? He smiled genially. In a minute, when you're all ready? The talking gradually died away, and the clearing fell silent, except for the bagpiper, who seemed to be in some wild and uninhabitable musical world of his own. A few of those in his immediate vicinity threw some leaves to him. If there was any reason for this, then it escaped Ford Prefect for the moment. A small group of people had clustered round the captain, and one of them was clearly preparing to speak. He did this by standing up, clearing his throat, and then gazing off into the distance as if to signify to the crowd that he would be with them in a minute. 
The crowd, of course, were riveted, and all turned their eyes on him. A moment of silence followed, which Ford judged to be the right dramatic moment to make his entry. The man turned to speak. Ford dropped down out of the tree. Hi there, he said. The crowd swivelled round. Ah, my dear fellow, called out the captain. Got any matches on you, or, or a lighter, anything like that? No, said Ford, sounding a little deflated. It wasn't what he had prepared. He decided he'd better be a little stronger on the subject. No, I haven't, he continued. No matches. Instead, I bring you news. Pity, said the captain. We've all run out, you see. Haven't had a hot bath in weeks. Ford refused to be headed off. I bring you news, he said, of a discovery that might interest you. Is it on the agenda? snapped the man whom Ford had interrupted. Ford smiled a broad, country rock singer smile. Now come on. Well, I'm sorry, said the man huffily, but speaking as a management consultant of many years' standing, I must insist on the importance of observing the committee's structure. Ford looked round the crowd. He's mad, you know, he said. This is a prehistoric planet. Address the chair, snapped the management consultant. There isn't a chair, explained Ford. There's only a rock. The management consultant decided that testiness was what the situation now called for. Well, call it a chair, he said testily. Why not call it a rock, asked Ford. You obviously have no conception, said the management consultant, now abandoning testiness in favour of good old-fashioned hauteur, of modern business methods. And you have no conception of where you are, said Ford. A girl with a strident voice leapt to her feet and used it. Shut up, you two, she said. I want to table a motion. You mean bolder emotion, tittered a hairdresser. Order, order, yapped the management consultant. All right, said Ford. Let's see how you're doing. He plonked himself down on the ground to see how long he could keep his temper. The captain made a sort of conciliatory harumphing noise. I would like to call to order, he said pleasantly, the 573rd meeting of the Colonisation Committee of Fintel Woodlewicks. Ten seconds, thought Ford, as he leapt to his feet again. This is futile, he exclaimed. 573 committee meetings, and you haven't even discovered fire yet. If you would care, said the girl with a strident voice, to examine the agenda sheet. Agenda rock, trilled the hairdresser happily. Thank you, I've made that point, muttered Ford. You will see, continued the girl firmly, that we are having a report from the hairdresser's fire development subcommittee today. Oh, ah, uh, said the hairdresser with a sheepish look, which is recognised the whole galaxy over as meaning, uh, will next Tuesday do? All right, said Ford, rounding on him. What have you done? What are you going to do? What are your thoughts on fire development? Well, I don't know, said the hairdresser. All they gave me was a couple of sticks. So what have you done with them? Nervously, the hairdresser fished in his tracksuit top, and handed over the fruits of his labour to Ford. Ford held them up for all to see. Curling tongs, he said. The crowd applauded. Never mind, said Ford. Rome wasn't burnt in a day. The crowd hadn't the faintest idea what he was talking about, but they loved it nevertheless. They applauded. Well, you're obviously being totally naive, of course, said the girl. When you've been in marketing as long as I have, you'll know that before any new product can be developed, it has to be properly researched. We've got to find out what people want from fire, how they relate to it, what sort of image it has for them. The crowd were tense. They were expecting something wonderful from Ford. Stick it up your nose, he said. Which is precisely the sort of thing we need to know, insisted the girl. Do people want fire that can be fitted nasally? Do you? Ford asked the crowd. Yes, shouted some. No, shouted others happily. They didn't know. They just thought it was great. And the wheel, said the captain. What about this wheel thing? It sounds a terribly interesting project. Ah. Captain, sir, cried number two, for he was their leader. Permission to report, sir! Yes, all right, number two, welcome back and all that. Find any hot springs? said the captain despondently. No, sir! Thought you wouldn't. Number two strode through the crowd and presented arms before the bath. 
We have discovered another continent. When was this? It lies across the sea, said number two, narrowing his eyes significantly. To the east. Ah. Number two turned to face the crowd. He raised his gun above his head. This is going to be great, thought the crowd. We have declared war on it! Wild, abandoned cheering broke out in all corners of the clearing. This was beyond all expectation. Wait a minute, shouted Ford Prefect. Wait a minute! He leapt to his feet and demanded silence. After a while, he got it, or at least the best silence he could hope for under the circumstances. The circumstances were that the bagpiper was spontaneously composing a national anthem. Do we have to have the piper? demanded Ford. Oh, yes, said the captain. We've given him a grant. Ford considered opening this idea up for debate, but quickly decided that that way madness lay. Instead, he slung a well-judged rock at the piper and turned to face number two. War, he said. Yes, number two gazed contemptuously at Ford Prefect. On the next continent? Yes, total warfare. The war to end all wars. But there's no one even living there yet. Ah, interesting, thought the crowd. Nice point. Number two's gaze hovered undisturbed. In this respect, his eyes were like a couple of mosquitoes that hover purposefully three inches from your nose and refuse to be deflected by arm thrashes, fly swats or rolled newspapers. I know that, he said, but there will be one day. So we have left an open-ended ultimatum. What? And blown up a few military installations. The captain leaned forward out of his bath. Military installations, number two, he said. For a moment, the eyes wavered. Yes, sir, well, potential military installations. All right, trees. The moment of uncertainty passed. His eyes flicked like whips over his audience. And, he roared, we interrogated a gazelle. He flipped his killer zap smartly under his arm and marched off through the pandemonium that had now erupted throughout the ecstatic crowd. A few steps was all he managed before he was caught up and carried shoulder high for a lap of honour round the clearing. Ford sat and idly tapped a couple of stones together. So what else have you done, he inquired after the celebrations had died down. We have started a culture, said the marketing girl. Oh yes, said Ford. Yes, one of our film producers is already making a fascinating documentary about the indigenous cavemen of the area. They're not cavemen. They look like cavemen. Do they live in caves? Well, they live in huts. Perhaps they're having their caves redecorated, called out a wag from the crowd. Ford rounded on him angrily. Very funny, he said, but have you noticed that they're dying out? On their journey back, Ford and Arthur had come across two derelict villages and the bodies of many natives in the woods where they had crept away to die. Those that still lived seemed stricken and listless, as if they were suffering from some disease of the spirit rather than the body. They moved sluggishly and with an infinite sadness. Their future had been taken away from them. Dying out, repeated Ford. Do you know what that means? Uh, we shouldn't sell them any life insurance, called out the wag again. Ford ignored him and appealed to the whole crowd. Can you try and understand, he said, that it's just since we've arrived here that they've started dying out. In fact, that comes over terribly well in this film, said the marketing girl, and just gives it that poignant twist which is the hallmark of the really great documentary. The producer's very committed. He should be, muttered Ford. I gather, said the girl, turning to address the captain, who was beginning to nod off, that he wants to make one about you next, captain. Oh, oh really? he said, coming to with a start. That's awfully nice. He's got a very strong angle on it, you know. The burden of responsibility, the loneliness of command. The captain hummed and hard about this for a moment. Well, I wouldn't overstress that angle, you know, he said finally. One's never alone with a rubber duck. He held the duck aloft, and it got an appreciative round from the crowd. All this while, the management consultant had been sitting in stony silence, his fingertips pressed to his temples to indicate that he was waiting, and would wait all day if it was necessary. At this point, he decided he would not wait all day after all. He would merely pretend that the last half hour hadn't happened. 
He rose to his feet. If, he said tersely, we could for a moment move on to the subject of fiscal policy. Fiscal policy, whooped Ford Prefect. Fiscal policy. The management consultant gave him a look that only a lungfish could have copied. Fiscal policy, he repeated. That is what I said. How can you have money, demanded Ford, if none of you actually produces anything? It doesn't grow on trees, you know. If you would allow me to continue... Ford nodded dejectedly. Thank you. Since we decided a few weeks ago to adopt the leaf as legal tender, we have, of course, all become immensely rich. Ford stared in disbelief at the crowd, who were murmuring appreciatively at this and greedily fingering the wads of leaves with which their tracksuits were stuffed. But we have also, continued the management consultant, run into a small inflation problem on account of the high level of leaf availability, which means that, I gather, the current going rate has something like three deciduous forests buying one ship's peanut. Murmurs of alarm came from the crowd. The management consultant waved them down. So, in order to obviate this problem, he continued, and effectively revalue the leaf, we are about to embark on a massive defoliation campaign and, uh, burn down all the forests. I think you'll all agree that's a sensible move under the circumstances. The crowd seemed a little uncertain about this for a second or two, until someone pointed out how much this would increase the value of the leaves in their pockets whereupon they let out whoops of delight and gave the management consultant a standing ovation. The accountants amongst them looked forward to a profitable autumn. You're all mad, explained Ford Prefect. You're absolutely balmy, he suggested. You're a bunch of raving nutters, he opined. The tide of opinion was beginning to turn against him. What had started out as excellent entertainment had now, in the crowd's view, deteriorated into mere abuse, and since this abuse was in the main directed at them, they wearied of it. Sensing this shift in the wind, the marketing girl turned on him. Is it perhaps in order, she demanded, to inquire what you've been doing all these months then? You and that other interloper have been missing since the day we arrived. We've been on a journey, said Ford. We went to try and find out something about this planet. Oh, said the girl archly. Doesn't sound very productive to me. No? Well, have I got news for you, my love. We have discovered this planet's future. Ford waited for this statement to have its effect. It didn't have any. They didn't know what he was talking about. He continued. It doesn't matter a pair of fetid dingo's kidneys what you all choose to do from now on. Burn down the forests, anything. It won't make a scrap of difference. Your future history has already happened. Two million years you've got, and that's it. At the end of that time, your race will be dead. Gone, and good riddance to you. Remember that? Two million years. The crowd muttered to itself in annoyance. People as rich as they had suddenly become shouldn't be obliged to listen to this sort of gibberish. Perhaps they could tip the fellow a leaf or two and he would go away. They didn't need to bother. Ford was already stalking out of the clearing, pausing only to shake his head at number two, who was already firing his killer zap into some neighbouring trees. He turned back once. Two million years, he said, and laughed. Well, said the captain with a soothing smile, Still time for a few more baths. Could someone pass me the sponge? I just dropped it over the side. Chapter 33 A mile or so away through the wood, Arthur Dent was too busily engrossed with what he was doing to hear Ford Prefect approach. What he was doing was rather curious, and this is what it was. On a wide, flat piece of rock, he had scratched out the shape of a large square subdivided into 169 smaller squares, 13 to a side. Furthermore, he had collected together a pile of smallish, flattish stones and scratched the shape of a letter onto each. Sitting morosely round the rock were a couple of the surviving local native men to whom Arthur Dent was trying to introduce the curious concept embodied in these stones. So far, they had not done well. They had attempted to eat some of them, bury others and throw the rest of them away. Arthur had finally encouraged one of them to lay a couple of stones on the board he had scratched out, 
which was not even as far as he'd managed to get the day before. Along with the rapid deterioration in the morale of these creatures, there seemed to be a corresponding deterioration in their actual intelligence. In an attempt to egg them along, Arthur set out a number of letters on the board himself, and then tried to encourage the natives to add some more themselves. It was not going well. Ford watched quietly from beside a nearby tree. No, said Arthur to one of the natives, who had just shuffled some of the letters round in a fit of abysmal dejection. Q scores ten, you see, and it's on a triple word score. So, look, I've, I've explained the rules to you. No, no, look, please, put down that jawbone. All right, we'll start again and try to concentrate this time. Ford leaned his elbow against the tree and his hand against his head. What are you doing, Arthur? he asked quietly. Arthur looked up with a start. He suddenly had a feeling that all this might look slightly foolish. All he knew was that it had worked like a dream on him when he was a child. But things were different then, or rather would be. I'm trying to teach the cavemen to play Scrabble, he said. They're not cavemen, said Ford. Well, they look like cavemen. Ford let it pass. I see, he said. It's uphill work, said Arthur wearily. The only word they know is grunt and they can't spell it. He sighed and sat back. What's that supposed to achieve? asked Ford. We've got to encourage them to evolve, to develop, Arthur burst out angrily. He hoped that the weary sigh and then the anger might do something to counteract the overriding feeling of foolishness from which he was currently suffering. It didn't. He jumped to his feet. Can you imagine what a world would be like descended from those cretins we arrived with, he said. Imagine, said Ford, raising his eyebrows. We don't have to imagine. We've seen it. But, Arthur waved his arms about hopelessly. We've seen it, said Ford. There's no escape. Arthur kicked at a stone. Did you tell them what we discovered, he asked. Hmm, said Ford, not really concentrating. Norway, said Arthur. Slarty Bartfast's signature in the glacier. Did you tell them? What's the point, said Ford. What would it mean to them? Mean, said Arthur. Mean? You know perfectly well what it means. It means that this planet is the Earth. It's my home. It's where I was born. Was, said Ford. All right, will be. Yes, in two million years' time. Why don't you tell them that? Go and say to them, excuse me, I'd just like to point out that in two million years' time, I will be born just a few miles from here. See what they say. They'll chase you up a tree and set fire to it. Arthur absorbed this unhappily. Face it, said Ford. Those zebes over there are your ancestors, not these poor creatures here. He went over to where the ape-men creatures were rummaging listlessly with the stone letters. He shook his head. Put the scrabble away, Arthur, he said. It won't save the human race, because this lot aren't going to be the human race. The human race is currently sitting round a rock on the other side of this hill, making documentaries about themselves. Arthur winced. There must be something we can do, he said. A terrible sense of desolation thrilled through his body, that he should be here, on the earth, the earth which had lost its future in a horrifying, arbitrary catastrophe and which now seemed set to lose its past as well. No, said Ford, there's nothing we can do. This doesn't change the history of the earth, you see, this is the history of the earth. Like it or leave it, the Golgofrinchians are the people you are descended from. In two million years, they get destroyed by the Vogons. History is never altered, you see, it just fits together like a jigsaw. Funny old thing, life, isn't it? He picked up the letter Q and hurled it into a distant privet bush where it hit a young rabbit. The rabbit hurtled off in terror and didn't stop till it was set upon and eaten by a fox, which choked on one of its bones and died on the bank of a stream, which subsequently washed it away. During the following weeks, Ford Prefect swallowed his pride and struck up a relationship with a girl who had been a personnel officer on Golga Frinchen, and he was terribly upset when she suddenly passed away as a result of drinking water from a pool that had been polluted by the body of a dead fox. The only moral it is possible to draw from this story is that one should never throw the letter Q into a privet bush, 
but unfortunately, there are times when it is unavoidable. Like most of the really crucial things in life, this chain of events was completely invisible to Ford Prefect and Arthur Dent. They were looking sadly at one of the natives morosely pushing the other letters around. Poor bloody caveman, said Arthur. They're not! What? Oh, never mind, said Ford. The wretched creature let out a pathetic howling noise and banged on the rock. It's all been a bit of a waste of time for them, hasn't it? said Arthur. <laughs> muttered the native and banged on the rock again. They've been out evolved by telephone sanitizers. <laughs> insisted the native, continuing to bang on the rock. Why does he keep banging on the rock? said Arthur. I think he probably wants you to scrabble with him again, said Ford. He's pointing to the letters. Probably spelt Kithrgirudritz again, poor bastard. I keep on telling him there's only one G in Kithrgirudritz. The native banged on the rock again. They looked over his shoulder. Their eyes popped. There, amongst the jumble of letters, were eight that had been laid out in a clear, straight line. They spelt two words. The words were these. Forty-two. <laughs> explained the native. He swept the letters angrily away and went and mooched under a nearby tree with his colleague. Ford and Arthur stared at him. Then they stared at each other. Did that say what I thought it said? They both said to each other. Yes, they both said. Forty-two, said Arthur. Forty-two, said Ford. Arthur ran over to the two natives. What are you trying to tell us? he shouted. What's it supposed to mean? One of them rolled over on the ground, kicked his legs up in the air, rolled over again and went to sleep. The other bounded up the tree and threw horse chestnuts at Ford Prefect. Whatever it was they had to say, they had already said it. You know what this means, said Ford. Not entirely. 42 is the number Deep Thought gave as being the ultimate answer. Yes, and the Earth is the computer Deep Thought designed and built to calculate the question to the ultimate answer. So we are led to believe. And organic life was part of the computer matrix. If you say so. I do say so. That means that these natives, these ape men, are an integral part of the computer program, and that we and the Golgofrinchians are not. But the cavemen are dying out and the Golgofrinchians are obviously set to replace them. Exactly. So you do see what this means. What? Cock up, said Ford Prefect. Arthur looked around him. This planet is having a pretty bloody time of it, he said. Ford puzzled for a moment. Still, something must have come out of it, he said at last because Marvin said he could see the question printed in your brainwave patterns. But probably the wrong one, or a distortion of the right one. Might give us a clue, though, if we could find it. I don't see how we can, though. They moped about for a bit. Arthur sat on the ground and started pulling up bits of grass, but found that it wasn't an occupation he could get deeply engrossed in. It wasn't grass he could believe in. The trees seemed pointless, the rolling hills seemed to be rolling to nowhere, and the future seemed just a tunnel to be crawled through. Ford fiddled with his sub-ether sensomatic. It was silent. He sighed and put it away. Arthur picked up one of the letter stones from his homemade Scrabble set. It was a T. He sighed and put it down again. The letter he put it down next to was an I. That spelt IT. He tossed another couple of letters next to them. They were an S and an H, as it happened. By a curious coincidence, the resulting word perfectly expressed the way Arthur was feeling about things just then. He stared at it for a moment. He hadn't done it deliberately, it was just a random chance. His brain got slowly into first gear. Ford, he said suddenly, look, if that question is printed in my brainwave patterns, but I am not consciously aware of it, it must be somewhere in my unconscious. Yes, I suppose so. Well, there might be a way of bringing that unconscious pattern forward. 
Oh, yes? Yes, by introducing some random element that can be shaped by that pattern. Like how? Like by pulling Scrabble letters out of a bag blindfold. Ford leapt to his feet. Brilliant, he said. He tugged his towel out of his satchel and with a few deft knots transformed it into a bag. Totally mad, he said. Utter nonsense, but we'll do it because it's brilliant nonsense. Come on, come on. The sun passed respectfully behind a cloud. A few small, sad raindrops fell. They piled together all the remaining letters and dropped them into the bag. They shook them up. Right, said Ford. Close your eyes. Pull them out. Come on, come on, come on. Arthur closed his eyes and plunged his hand into the towel full of stones. He jiggled them about, pulled out four and handed them to Ford. Ford laid them along the ground in the order he got them. W, said Ford. H, A, T. What? He blinked. I think it's working, he said. Arthur pushed three more at him. D, O, Y. Doy. Or perhaps it isn't working, said Ford. Here's the next three. O, U, G. Duyug. It's not making sense, I'm afraid. Arthur pulled another two from the bag. Ford put them in place. E, T. Do you get... Do you get... shouted Ford. It is working. This is amazing. It really is working. More here. Arthur was throwing them out feverishly as fast as he could go. I, F, said Ford. Y, O, U, M, U, L, T, I, P, L, Y. What do you get if you multiply? S, I, X, 6, B, Y, by, 6, by. What do you get if you multiply 6 by... N, I, N, E, six by nine. He paused. Come on, where's the next one? Uh, that's the lot, said Arthur. That's all there were. He sat back, nonplussed. He rooted around again in the knotted up towel, but there were no more letters. You mean that's it, said Ford. That's it. Six by nine. Forty-two. That's it. That's all there is. Chapter 34 The sun came out and beamed cheerfully at them. A bird sang. A warm breeze wafted through the trees and lifted the heads of the flowers, carrying their scent away through the woods. An insect droned past on its way to do whatever it is that insects do in the late afternoon. The sound of voices lilted through the trees, followed a moment later by two girls who stopped in surprise at the sight of Ford Prefect and Arthur Dent apparently lying on the ground in agony, but in fact rocking with noiseless laughter. <laughs> no, don't go, called Ford Prefect between gasps. We'll be with you in just a moment. What's the matter? asked one of the girls. She was the taller and slimmer of the two. On Golga Frinchen she had been a junior personnel officer, but hadn't liked it much. Ford pulled himself together. Excuse me, he said. Hello. My friend and I were just contemplating the meaning of life. Frivolous exercise. Oh, it's you, said the girl. You made a bit of a spectacle of yourself this afternoon. You were quite funny to begin with, but you did bang on a bit. Did I? Oh, yes. Yes, what was all that for? asked the other girl, a shorter, round-faced girl who had been an art director for a small advertising company on Golga Frinchen. Whatever the privations of this world were, she went to sleep every night profoundly grateful for the fact that whatever she had to face in the morning, it wouldn't be a hundred almost identical photographs of moodily lit tubes of toothpaste. For? For nothing. Nothing's for anything, said Ford Prefect happily. Come and join us. I'm Ford. This is Arthur. We were just about to do nothing at all for a while, but it can wait. The girls looked at them doubtfully. I'm Agda, said the tall one. This is Mella. Hello, Agda. Hello, Mella, said Ford. Do you talk at all? 
said Mella to Arthur. Oh, eventually, said Arthur with a smile, but not as much as Ford. Good. There was a slight pause. What did you mean, asked Agda, about only having two million years? I couldn't make sense of what you were saying. Oh, that, said Ford, doesn't matter. It's just that the world gets demolished to make way for a hyperspace bypass, said Arthur with a shrug. But that's two million years away. And anyway, it's just Vogons doing what Vogons do. Vogons? said Mella. Yes, you, you wouldn't know them. Where do you get this idea from? It really doesn't matter. It's just like a dream from the past or the future. Arthur smiled and looked away. Does it worry you that you don't talk any kind of sense? asked Agda. Listen, forget it said Ford. Forget all of it. Nothing matters. Look, it's a beautiful day. Enjoy it. The sun, the green of the hills, the river down in the valley, the burning trees. Even if it's only a dream, it's a pretty horrible idea, said Mella. Destroying a world just to make a bypass? Oh, I've heard of worse, said Ford. I read of one planet off in the seventh dimension that got used as a ball in a game of intergalactic bar billiards got potted straight into a black hole, killed ten billion people. That's mad, said Mella. Yes, only scored thirty points too. Agda and Mella exchanged glances. Look, said Agda, there's a party after the committee meeting tonight. You can come along if you like. Yeah, OK, said Ford. I'd like to, said Arthur. Many hours later, Arthur and Mella sat and watched the moon rise over the dull red glow of the trees. That story about the world being destroyed, began Mella. In two million years, yes. You say it as if you really think it's true. Yes, I think it is. I think I was there. She shook her head in puzzlement. You're very strange, she said. No, I'm very ordinary, said Arthur. But some very strange things have happened to me. You could say I'm more differed from than differing. And that other world your friend talked about? The one that got pushed into a black hole? Ah, uh, that I don't know about. It sounds like something from the book. What book? Arthur paused. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, he said at last. What's that? Oh, just something I threw into the river this evening. I don't think I'll be wanting it any more, said Arthur Dent. <laughs>